Welcome to episode 66, Mindfulness with Children and Families, Teaching Mindfulness to Children in Schools and Therapy, featuring Dr. Diane Gayhart, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, from Clearly Clinical, Learn, Grow, Shine. Hello to our listeners. I am very honored today to be here with Dr. Diane Gayhart. Uh, Diane is a expert in mindfulness and family therapy, and she has been in practice uh, since the 1990s. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. Today, she's going to be joining us to talk about mindfulness with children and families and teaching mindfulness to children in schools and therapy. This is really one of her passions, and we're delighted to spend this time with her. Um, Diane, welcome. Please tell us a little bit about you and your background. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I'm a professor in family therapy at California State University, Northridge, and I have a private practice in Agoura Hills, California. It's all sort of in the LA area. Um, and I have two young boys. And so um, I have been doing mindfulness in my personally for years in my practice for over almost two decades, actually. I actually started working with mindfulness very early in my practice. Um, I guess maybe this might be a good place to actually reveal that before I got my doctorate in marriage and family therapy, I actually started a doctorate in um, to be a Tibetan Buddhist scholar. So I didn't finish it, so I don't have two doctorates, but I did study Buddhist um, texts in the original Chinese and Tibetan. Um, I can't read that anymore, but I did at one point and I studied Buddhism actually quite a bit before I came into the field. So I really entered the whole field of mental health, um, from a very East Asian philosophical perspective. And I, I think it's one of the reasons I was so drawn to the systemic and postmodern ideas in family therapy, because they're actually very close to, um, the Buddhist psychologies, their deconstructive, deconstruction, deconstructive, um, philosophies. Wow. That was hard to say. Um, so. So yeah, I guess that's a little bit about uh, who I am. I also actually have write quite a bit in the area of marriage and family therapy, as well as general counseling and psychotherapy theories. And I have several textbooks, um, such as Mastering Competencies in Family Therapy and Theory and Treatment Planning and Counseling and Psychotherapy. So that's some of what I do. Uh, thank you again for being here. I can hear even as you speak about it, how passionate you are about mindfulness. Uh, tell us how you found yourself on that track and going the direction of studying uh, the kind of Buddhist perspective. Um, sure. So as I mentioned, I certainly came into the field um, thinking about human suffering from a um, Buddhist perspective. And so Buddhism in the, the majority of Buddhist literature doesn't isn't so much about religious or spiritual things as much as it is how do we understand and alleviate human suffering and obviously uh, most of us know that the the buddhists use a lot of meditation to address human suffering and the real what, what what's happening in mindfulness and meditative practices you know there are many things happening but one of the main things happening is that you begin to develop the ability to watch your mind in action watch how the thoughts arise and the emotions arise and you begin to get this observer's perspective that's actually described in lots of different schools of philosophy, even in the West. Um, and it, it's getting this space between yourself and your thoughts and uh, is where you creates the ability to, instead of just react to things, you can choose your responses. And so very simply put, um, I think that's one of the reasons um, mindfulness in particular has been looked at um, 
and used by mental health practitioners. And yeah. That kind of brings me to my next question. What is mindfulness? Okay. There's actually a lot of misperception and misunderstandings about mindfulness. So the most basic definition of mindfulness is bringing, so is intentionally, and that's a very important piece. It's one of the things that makes mindfulness so different from flow uh, per se, but you intentionally focus on a single experience in the present moment. And you do so with compassion for yourself, because let me tell you, you're not going to be able to focus very long, (laughs) Um, with compassion and non-judgment, not judging what's going on, whatever is going on in your mind. So it's this intentional present moment focus is the first component. Um, The second component is with compassion, and the third is without judgment. And so it's just bringing your um, awareness to anything intentionally in the present moment. And the most common form that it takes is focusing on your breath because, well, that's always with us, isn't it? And it's free and it's easy to focus on. So, and it's moving and that's another important piece of it. But by, so the general instructions are to focus on your breath while trying to quiet the inner chatter of your mind. And every time your mind wanders off, to compassionately refocus without judging yourself or what you were thinking about. And so I, where a lot of the misunderstanding happens, because most of us, you know, in the West, when we hear those instructions, we think, well, that sounds pretty easy. I can handle that. You're not asking me to do anything like complex. And But the truth is, most of us cannot focus our minds for more than three, five seconds before the chatter begins, or you get, you hear a noise that distracts you or an itch that distracts you. And so most people say, well, I'm terrible at mindfulness. My mind keeps wandering. And the truth is that often for many of us who live busy, hectic, you know, you know, commonplace Western lives, our mind only focuses for three to five seconds where it's quiet. And more than half of your meditation is the mind's going to be wandering, chattering, thinking, am I doing this right? Oh my God. You know, I had that argument this morning or thinking about what you need to do next. And then, you know, hearing a noise outside, why can't my neighbor keep the dog down? You know, that's what your mind does. And then you refocus. And so um, I think there's a misconception that if your mind isn't totally still, for the entire 10 or 20 minutes, you're doing it wrong. Um, but that's really not the practice. It's really a practice of continually refocusing and refocusing and refocusing. Tell me about some of the research behind mindfulness when we look at its application to behavioral health disorders. There is a lot of research out there. Um, it's a it's an area that's really gotten a lot of attention, I think, because it is such a discrete activity compared to so much of what we do in mental health and psychotherapy. It's like, it's an, it can be a technique that you can easily, easily measure the outcomes of it. Um, so there is a fair amount of research, both neurological in terms of using, you know, fMRI brain studies, um, as well as more traditional psychotherapy research. So I, I think the most overwhelming finding and the clearest finding is what mindfulness does is it reduces our our stress response and it improves the way um, our bodies actually and our minds um, respond to stressors. And this is huge. So basically any physiological or mental health issue that is exacerbated by stress, 
I really think that covers most of the DSM-5. Um, any disorder that does um, will improve with mindfulness. And so if you look on the physical side, um, there are lots of studies around chronic pain, heart disease, even diabetes, psoriasis. There's a long list of any health issue um, that is related to stress or made worse by stress gets better with mindfulness practice. And then in uh, mental health, most of our disorders do improve with mindfulness. Now, the most exciting research, well, there's actually several exciting areas, um, but one of the most um, well-researched and studied area is really mindfulness for depression relapse. So what depression relapse is, kind of like something we hear talk a lot more about substance abuse relapse than depression or anxiety relapse, but most people who are successfully treated from um, depression, major depressive disorder, whether they're it's using psychotherapy, medication, or a combination of the two, m- uh, most of the people will have another depressive episode have a relapse within a year. So that's pretty dismal outcome, actually. Um, But mindfulness is the gold standard for preventing that. And what they believe is, and they do use an eight-week mindfulness-based cognitive therapy program is the protocol that was developed for this. And it's an eight-week program that's based on um, really the first mindfulness program, which is mindfulness-based stress um, MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which was pioneered really at the University of Massachusetts um, with John Kabat-Zinn's work. Gosh, I think he began in the 70s or 80s with this. And he started, it's a hospital setting where they were using it um, with chronic pain and other disorders, again, like heart disease that were not responding well to other treatments. And so using the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to uh, reduce uh, depression, they also use it with anxiety, obviously, and, and other mental health disorders. And again, like I was mentioning at the beginning, um, is that some of what they think is happening is that people learn how to observe their mind in action. And I, we, what we you know, hypothesize is going on is that um, people who have been depressed and go through this mindfulness-based cognitive therapy when depressive thoughts or anxious thoughts start creeping back in, or even with OCD, you know, obsessive thoughts start creeping back in, you notice it sooner and you're able to take evasive, you know, evasive maneuvers to kind of get, to make sure you don't slip back into a full depressive episode. So that's one of the thoughts. So mindfulness is really, um, for the majority of clients we work with, learning mindfulness helps reduce the chances that they're going to relapse because you're able to observe emotions and thoughts that they, you know, hopefully identified in psychotherapy with you um, as being problematic. They can see when they start creeping back in and do something different. Um, So that's the, the other, another major area where they're using mindfulness is with ADHD and ADD. And mindfulness is identified as one of only two potential kind of corrective interventions um, to help correct some of the brain issues in mindfulness. And some of the brain issues that they uh, hypothesize or talk about is that it's actually the prefrontal cortex is under stimulated. That's why we give kids and adults stimulants for this disorder. And what mindfulness can do is it can help um, actually kind of thicken the neural connections, or this is what's hypothesized, between the prefrontal cortex and the stress response um, limbic system of the brain that tends to be more overactive. So again, so that you can consciously uh, choose to focus. And if you think about it, mindfulness is practicing focusing. So anyone who's got 
you know, focus, issues with focusing, such as an ADD or ADHD, if you practice focusing, you know, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together, you're going to be practicing the skill that, that you want them to have. Uh, thank you for covering some of that research. Now, looking specifically into its application with children, just like you talked about with ADHD, what's some of the research about working with children and children using um, the tools and skills involved with mindfulness? So using mindfulness with children is obviously a newer area of implementation, um, but there's been a lot of energy and excitement around this. And actually in Canada, there is a lot of work using mindfulness in schools with kids um, as well as in the States. And so the general findings are that mindfulness has a very similar effect size, um, slightly smaller with children than with adults, um, but it is a viable intervention to use with children. And again, very similar to what the findings with adults, it helps with focus, it helps with depression, anxiety, the ability to self-regulate, which we now know is so important for your emotional success, academic success. Um, And so this is where some of the excitement comes in is that it's a very concrete way to help um, teach kids how to self-regulate and how to focus if they're struggling with those issues. You mentioned a little bit kind of the neurophysiology, um, especially in its application for ADHD. For mindfulness in general, how can we as practitioners use this information to support um, children and especially younger children kind of in the development of emotion regulation and focus? How does the neurophysiology come into play with the use of mindfulness? Okay, so um, I'm going to share with you um, a learning technique that Dan Siegel uses to teach about the brain and mindfulness. And this is something that's better done um, with video. So I, I, I do have a website that is called mindfulschool.net. That's mindful, M-I-N-D-F-U-L-S-C-H-O-O-L.net, N-E-T, where you can see me do this in a classroom and what it actually looks like. And unless you're driving, I want you to pick up your hand and I want you to fold your thumb kind of across the palm of your hand and then put your fingers over your thumb. So it's the type of fist you were probably told never to hit anyone with because you would break your thumb if you punch someone. So this is not a punching fist, but this is your handy model of the brain as Dan Siegel calls it. Um, and so, and I'm going to give you kind of the, the, the simple child version that I use. Um, so basically your wrist represents the brain stem. And, and of course it's a very, general, not scientifically oriented, but more of a teaching oriented model of the brain. The brain is more complex than this, but it hits, you you get enough to the kids that they understand and actually for adults too. So the brain is a brain, brain, the the wrist represents the brain stem and that is what keeps your heart beating, your lungs um, breathing without any conscious control over it. So it's a very old part of the brain. Um, Your thumb that is underneath your um, fingers represents the limbic system or the stress response, which I think many of us have been talking a lot more about as we understand it better in recent years. And then the prefrontal cortex represents um, the, or is the part of the brain where we have language, executive decision-making, empathy, a lot of what we think of as human, what we think of as ourselves. Um, And so when I'm working with kids, I call this the smart part. And then um, to kind of teach the concept of what the stress response is, so when your brain perceives a stressor, whether it's physical or emotional, 
um, what happens is, especially depending on the uh, strength of the stressor, your prefrontal cortex um, goes offline, and that is called flipping your lids. So if you've still got your hand in your um, brain position, you're going to lift your fingers up and, um, and keep your thumb kind of folded over your palm. That's called flipping your lid. And the kids really get this concept, as do adults and their parents. Um, but when you but you flip your lid, so your lizard brain comes on, okay? And the lizard brain or your stress response, um, the reptilian brain is an older term. It's not totally accurate, but the kids love the idea of the lizard brain. And you will see when I teach mindfulness, I do use a puppet to represent this. This lizard brain, though, is amazing at keeping us physically safe against a life-threatening danger, such as a bear, saber-toothed tiger, because you... it. Um, your prefrontal cortex is just way too slow to keep you alive if there is a bear or a snake that you're worried about actually attacking you. And so that's why it has to go offline because, you know, you don't have time to think through your best exit strategy when the bear's standing over there. You need to fight it. You need to run or you need to freeze hoping that it doesn't actually see you. And if you think about freezing, it actually uses a lot of muscle to actually be, you have to tighten your muscles and not move. Um, and so what happens when your stress response goes off, as many of you listening to this know, but I'm just going to say it just to remind you, um, is that you get, um, the blood goes from your extremities to your muscles. So you can run if you need to fight, if you need to, or freeze, if you need to. Also, if a bear is about to eat you, you don't need to reproduce or digest your lunch or fight off a virus because a bear is about to kill you. So your digestive system turns off. Um, your immune system is not on full speed and your reproductive um, system is not on full speed because you don't need those if a bear is about to eat you. Um, so all these things happen. It's really a miraculous, amazing process that we have in our bodies that we can do this. And it very much comes out of a survival, physical survival um, and humans who uh, could flip their lids actually were able to survive saber-toothed tiger, bear, and snake attacks. So they, And it's just because the prefrontal cortex slows us down too much. So there really is a purpose. We uh, don't want to you know, say horrible things about our lizard brains. But unfortunately, what has happened in the last 100, 200 years is that we have so few of these physiological stressors and so many more psychological stressors. But this amazing stress response... Uh, does not work well with psychological stressors because they don't turn off. Because usually when you're faced with a bear or a snake or a, another predator, you got it's, a, it's about a 15-20 minute battle and you either won, you know, you, you either are safe or you're someone's lunch. I mean, that's, that's all it's designed to run. Our bodies aren't meant to be in a high stress state all the time. But because we have psychological stress, Nothing, you know, we sit there and we can worry all day long. It doesn't just stop after 20 minutes. And this is why we have so many, so many of our health issues in the 21st century are related to the stress response because our bodies are not designed to be in the stress response all day long. But most of us are in this state for the majority of the day. It's one of my favorite things when you start teaching, especially adults, to meditate almost everyone says, oh, I'm so sleepy when I start doing mindfulness. And it's actually because a part of that is that you're, you have actually paired 
the relaxation response, which is a true physiological response. It's not a margarita on the beach. That's a different thing. It's your body has a physiological relaxation response. We, most of us only actually run that system in the body right before we go to bed. And so our body, bodies have paired the relaxation response with going to sleep. And it takes a couple of weeks often for us to actually get used to being relaxed and awake. And so if you practice, keep practicing, that sleepiness tends to go away. But it's very um, pronounced for many of us when we start practicing. Thank you for that explanation. When you use that way to describe mindfulness to children, how do they react? What kind of questions do they ask to start to understand how the brain is affecting and controlling their behavior? Well, I actually teach... um, this model of the brain and mindfulness to uh, children of age three. So I started in a preschool all the way up through fifth grade. So I've been working with younger kids, teaching them, and they get it. They really get it. I mean, this is simplified. This is not going to get you through any graduate level neurobiology class by any means, Um, but they get the concept of flipping their lids. And I can ask three-year-olds. I can just give them the little talk I gave you. I do use a puppet named Bob, who is an iguana who represents the lizard brain when I teach. And you can see it on that website, the mindfulschool.net website. Um, It's actually a site I designed as part of a research study um, to disseminate kind of free information to schools who want to start a mindfulness program and can't afford to buy one of the, um, you know, pre-made, more expensive, several thousand dollar programs. Um, So, but Bob is my teaching assistant and Bob represents the lizard brain. He is an iguana. And so we often demonstrate um, how Bob would try to focus. And of course, when he does, he can't. And the kids just giggle and laugh. Um, And so when I teach them about flipping their lids, I will often say, so, you know, when's the time you flipped your lids? And three-year-olds, 12-year-olds, they all, they know what it is. They know when they do it and they are, you know, um, can describe when they do it and what they do when they do it. And so, you know, they will throw, they'll say, that's when I cry and throw a tantrum, or, you know, I flip my lid when, you know, my mom tells me I can't, you know, watch a show or play my iPad, whatever it might be. Um, or when they get mad on the playground, they can describe all of that. They really get the concept. I've been very impressed because I wasn't really sure. I started doing this, gosh, four years ago, I think. I wasn't really sure how it was going to go with the little ones at three, four, and five. But even at that age, they really do understand. They learn to see it in themselves and others. I don't talk so much about their parents, but they come back in, you know, and tell me, you know, Dr. Gayhart, my mom flipped her lid this morning. And so they begin to see it in others. And we talk about how when someone's, you know, uh, flipped their lid and they're they're using their lizard brain, you you should never tell them that they flipped their lid and are using their lizard brain because lizards don't take to that very well. And they just attack you even more and they will flip their brain in you know, even further. And so we even talk about how to take care of each other and how to help get the other person's, you know, lid, um, get it back on. So um, they get the concept. I'm really impressed. And then once they hit third, fourth grade, I you'll see there's even a real able to apply it in so many areas in their lives without being directly taught, like how to use some of these ideas and concepts when they're on the soccer field, when they're at home, when they're arguing with their parents, um, and, and they really are able to apply it pretty widely in their life. 
So that covers kind of how they start to understand how the brain functions. How do you introduce in therapy this idea of utilizing mindfulness and and how they can do it in their day-to-day when they are feeling like they might flip their lid or they already have? Yeah. So, um, so in terms of actually having kids do mindfulness, there are a few important things to kind of distinguish in terms of how it's different than um, working with adults. So what mindfulness looks like with adults. So the first thing to know is that for kids, I would say under third grade, focusing on their breath is really hard. It is too abstract. So what we use is a chime and we have, um, we have a little chime in every classroom. We bring it around with us and we ring the chime and we have them close their eyes and we have them listen to the chime until it fades away. And yes, I do shop for special chimes that last for 30 to 60 seconds to get the most. So you do need to use a real musical chime, a high quality one. I have one of the ones, I have some um, options that I've used from Amazon uh, to make, but you do want to make sure you time that, that uh, chime. Um, and you can then ring it, you know, two or three times if you want to have a longer practice session, but the kids need something external like sound to focus on. Um, so just telling them to focus on their breath is a little bit, um, that's too abstract, especially for the younger ones. Once they hit 10 years old, they can start doing their breath. But the other piece is it's going to be a lot shorter than what adults can do. So it's going to be one to five minutes sort of thing. Obviously, the younger the kids are, you know, one minute, two minute, three minute is the um, the most you're going to get out of them unless it's a very engaging activity. And I, I do have a suggestion for that um, when, I, when I teach in the group formats. Um, so using that chime and then in the, so that's, so you're going to use an external thing. You're going to have your practice be a lot shorter. And then the, the third thing to keep in mind is that it does look different, especially with younger kids under 10, they wiggle. Um, I actually uh, posted on, on YouTube recently, a video of my kids and I doing what I call out the door meditation. So before we go to school, we ring the chime and um, I purposely put up there uh, an example of how they wiggle like adults when our minds wander we just think but kids when they lose their focus their bodies start moving especially boys boys more so than girls and the younger kids more so than older kids but their bodies start to move that's how they lose their focus so yes they're going to wiggle and that's okay you know and yes there is you know I do it in classrooms so yes there's often a kid who will goof off and that's okay too because it's uh, you want them to just refocus, so they wiggle and then they stop wiggling. Or maybe you sometimes if it's a class situation, you got to you know help them. But that's part of the process because it's the refocusing is um, where I think we get the most benefit um, psychologically. So that's another important point I think to remember. But whether you're teaching adults or children about mindfulness, is the goal in terms of getting the psychological benefit is not to have long periods without thought. I really do believe that's very important when you're going for spiritual, you know, you want to have spiritual development come out of your mindfulness. Those long periods of silence really help. But if you really want to be managing, you know, ADHD, depression, anxiety, it's not, it doesn't matter how long the focus is. What matters is how many times do they have the refocusing? And so every time they refocus, there is like a new neural firing between the prefrontal cortex limbic system to calm it down. And you're helping to rewire the brain so it becomes easier and easier 
um, to refocus. Now I don't use an fMRI machine to see how, you know, what's going on necessarily in my, um, clients' brains, but I, I, and I, or my students' brains, I have my uh, students who are marriage and family therapy, um, in students, um, that within about two weeks, most of them really notice a substantial difference in their ability to not overreact, to calm themselves down and to not have their stress response easily triggered. So within two weeks, and the general recommendation for adults at least is five minutes a day, five times a week. It's what I use with teens too. Um, I try to really have them put it into their um, everyday schedule. But you do see those benefits and it's really coming from the refocus. And so a lot of people stop meditating because they feel like, oh, I'm not good at it. I'm always distracted. I'm like, that's fine. As long as you refocus, I don't care You know how often you refocus. It's great. Um, and to really see that as the main purpose of what they're doing to get psychological benefits. When children are feeling big feelings mm -hmm. and, and I have my own four-year-old at home. So mm -hmm. I've seen those big feelings. Yes. Um, how do you recommend that therapists uh, support parents in understanding how to help kind of calm their children and um, utilize techniques that are user-friendly for parents to implement, but are also user-friendly for little kids? I know for me, um, knowing quite a bit about mindfulness, it is really difficult to get a three or four year old to connect to breath. Yeah. And if you don't have a chime handy, <laughs> what, what do you think parents can do to implement this on their own level in a way that is easy for them? Mm -hmm. Well, with kids, you're rarely going to get a kid to practice mindfulness or for, or an adult for that matter in the moment, once they flip their lids, once you flipped your lids is not the time to practice mindfulness. Mindfulness is a preventative. It is something, um, I, we try to have teachers ring it, you know, four times a day, this chime, they get four minutes of mindfulness in practice in a day, better than most adults who try to get their practice in. And so you're helping to strengthen their neurological ability to, um, self-regulate. And so you, that, that's what the practice is. It's not used during the tantrum. However, um, for parents, I really encourage them to use, to practice mindful. Again, they practice mindfulness so that when your child has a meltdown, you have the ability to keep your lid on and not flip your lid. Because if a parent or a teacher for that matter and I think all preschool teachers know this because I've taught to them. They're like, yes, we know exactly what you're saying. But if a parent or teacher can keep their smart part on, their ability to calm um, a, a tantruming child is significantly improved. Once a parent flips his or her lid after the kid, because the kid has flipped you know, his or her lid, you've got two you know, screaming lizards at each other. And so it's really... Um, not very effective. And there is um, some evidence, some research, again, this comes actually from Dan Siegel's work, that talks about relational attunement and that it actually happens to some degree at a neurological level. So if you can keep your smart part on, your child is a much better chance if they can get in, in sync with you neurologically that you can help them put their lid on. But if your lids flip, no one's lids getting on for a long, long time. So it sounds like the importance of trying to implement these things, not only with kids that we might see as uh, child therapists, but then also taking it the extra step, talking to families about what's a reasonable expectation and ways that they can help um, mm -hmm. themselves keep their lids on and engage their smart part so that they can be mirroring for their child a, a calmer response to a stressful situation. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things I like to emphasize to parents with children who are five or six years old, that when a young child, um, a preschooler basically has a temper tantrum, you will notice that they really do lose their language and their ability to often use language. That's in the prefrontal cortex and they don't have as much as the rest of us. And so when they flip, that ability is gone. And so talking to a preschooler with any complex, trying to communicate any complex concept, like trying to explain why they didn't get what they wanted, unless you can do it in like two, three word short sentences, you're wasting your time. And really your focus needs to be on calming them down, getting their smart part. It's all going to be okay. Phrases like that to help calm them um, instead of talking to them. And that's even true when you start looking at older kids, you know, once a kid is, you know, yeah, teenagers usually aren't, you know, you know banging their fists on the floor and crying, you know, and kicking, rolling around on the floor. Some, some, I've heard of some stories, um, but even at an older age, you know, trying to talk sense to someone, including your partner or older children, once they flip their lid, you'll notice it rarely works. Most of us just cannot think clearly once we start flipping our lids enough to problem solve whatever we're upset about. You have to wait for everyone to calm down. Um, and a lot of, I use this the couples work too. A lot of my couples, they, they just start laughing. And I said, you know, two, two lizards warring in the living room don't solve problems. But boy, the next morning when their lids are back on, amazing how solvable that problem was. And it's true, you know, even for couples, they recognize it. I think understanding this basic principle um, really helps. And I, the kids are using it in the schools. One of the, I did a qualitative outcome study um, one, one year um, with the, at the school where I do mindfulness. And one of the comments from the kids was that they really felt like their school culture changed, that people were kinder, people were less likely to flip their lids. And I actually think there's a certain amount of peer pressure because this was a, was a school where everyone knew what it was. And so now they knew what flipping your lid was and what it looked like. And my guess was, that there's a certain amount of pressure to not do it. And certainly when it happens, people tend to, tended to be kinder with one another because they knew they would make the problem worse. I really appreciate looking at it that way. Um, I know, so different experts, uh, mm -hmm. different uh, theorists call it different things. So we have, you know, the Gottman's calling it physiological flooding. We use lots of different words to describe that same phenomenon. In terms of how long it takes children to come back to a baseline, how can we support kids once they have flipped their lid? And what's a reasonable expectation um, that these kids are going to have these big feelings um, and get them back to a point where they are, are calm enough to be able to put their lid back on and engage the smart part? So, you know, and that's a hard question to, I think, answer precisely because there is, as if we just look at ourselves, you can have a little flip or a big flip. And so there's all these areas, you know, of, of levels of flip in between. Uh, certainly with a big flip, it, um, I mean, Gottman talks about it an hour for men um, to fully come back after they've had a major flip. Um, so I think it's fair to consider that with kids. Although I will say with my own kids, um, it didn't take a full hour necessarily every time, but I'm all, you know, kids, um, I would say at least 15 minutes though, after they have a big flip at 15 minutes, I mean, once you start getting them calm again to really come back, um, but kids are funny, man. Sometimes, um, just a joke, uh, or you get them laughing and I have seen little kids actually come back from a big flip much faster than adults can. Um, especially, I'll tell you, my six-year-old, you know, he can, he can still flip. Not as much, though. 
Um, but oftentimes a little humor injected in there and I can avert a big flip or he can come back, you know, much quicker than he used to when he was younger. So, it, you know, I think it really, uh, there are a lot of more variables with kids than with adults um, in terms of that. And, and the other piece is at school, there's so much more pressure to be well-behaved compared to at home. You can almost always expect kids to have bigger meltdowns at home than at school. And usually at school, they um, recover a bit faster. Although I also know kids who once they are triggered, and especially more sensitive kids who have a lot of empathy, actually, um, when they see another child get in trouble or they see another child get hurt, for those kids, there actually can be a loss of focus during class when something like that happens, or you know, they, they think the teacher was mean or yelled. They can get very scared and actually lose focus, and that's an issue I've seen um, in the schools too. So it might even be harder to see that that child has flipped their lids because they're sitting nicely because they're scared out of their minds, not wanting to get yelled at, or um, but they actually flip their lids, and then they just can't focus and follow the lessons. And the teachers will notice it as um, not being able to focus. So we're talking about kind of flipping our lid and when we have gotten flooded and we're feeling um, angry, mm -hmm. um, we'll say, what about for the kids that are prone more to kind of a inward response that they tend to be more anxious or tend to be more depressive? Those kids you were just talking about that might be having this kind of experience. How can we support those kids in utilizing mindfulness? Are there certain um, directions we should be trying to go that might be different than kids who are maybe prone to meltdowns? Well, mindfulness, the, the, um, actually, you use the same basic intervention or techniques um, in the same way, whether it's for externalizing or internalizing behaviors. And then it's teaching the kids the next time you do feel really scared in school or you get you know, scared or anxious, how can you use mindfulness? Um, for example, at the school um, where I do my mindfulness, there's a big emphasis on being on a stage. So all the kids have the experience of being nervous for the class. Every class has a play. Every kid is in the play. They all get up every other week and they sing a song or whatever. So we, we talk about how to use it when you're nervous, like going up on the stage, which is a little similar to what you're doing. And we, I actually have them role play it. You know, you're about to pretend like you're about to go up on the stage. Your, your hands are starting to get sweaty. You know, let's use our breath. Let's notice our breath. Um, because obviously, if you flip your lid, are you going to remember your lines? No, because it's in your smart part. And if your smart part's not there, you're not going to remember anything. So they all have had the, you know, the experience being on a stage. They know what it's like when all of a sudden all those, you know, all the words that you practice to your song or your play are just you can't remember them. And so they understand what's going on. And so then they will choose those who tend to get nervous and forget their lines. They know that you can, you know, you know, I recommend the teacher ring a chime to help everyone get their smart parts back on um, so that when they go on the stage, they remember everything it is they need to, to say or do. So try to kind of um, and in a school setting or even in a group setting, um, if in, a, in a therapy practice, if you're working with younger kids um, to just find hopefully examples that all of them can kind of relate to, like being on a stage. I think that's a great piece of advice. In addition to focusing on breathing, what are some other ways that you've utilized or have encouraged um, people to use for um, calming themselves down when they are feeling anxious or depressed for, for kiddos um, that maybe are not as good at focusing and they don't have something available like a chime or a whistle or a song? Um, what are some other kind of mindful grounding activities for our listeners that they can keep in mind and encourage parents to use or they could even use in session with their clients? 
Um, well, the chime and the breath are the two I use the most. With little kids for the breath, I will have them put their hands on their belly. And if I have the opportunity, I actually have them lay on the floor to do this. So they, and you can put a little like um, stuffed animal, it's called rocking the, you know, the baby to sleep. But also, you know, and every day if they're on the stage, you know, we talk about um, just focusing on your breath and putting your hands on your belly and feeling the movement there. Again, just trying to find something in the moment that is concrete. I do do eating exercises with them. We have them you know, mindfully eat fruit. So that's another way to do that. Um, and the kids seem to often find their own ways of doing things. For And for example, um, when I did my uh, interviews with, they were with third and fourth and fifth graders, one of them described how, well, I don't have a chime at home, um, but what I do is I take a glass of water and a knife and I ring the chime whenever I need to calm myself down. So they, they know that anything that makes that kind of like a chime sound they can use to focus on. Um, and because they do it repeatedly in school, when they go home, it's very helpful to them because that's another um, thing to remember with mindfulness is that you really practice when it's calm um, and you do create a behavioral pairing. And for a lot of those kids, that they'd say, boy, the chime would ring and I would just get my focus on, put my smart part on and sit down and do my schoolwork. And that just becomes a behavioral parent pairing as well as the useful practice of, you know, focusing your mind uh, using mindfulness. So it's kind of, um, and they, they figure that out and they find their own little ways to do it. I had people describe how they do it on soccer fields, riding horses, different types of competition, playing basketball, um, that they find a way to focus on something that's going on around them um, to, in order to kind of help focus their mind. I appreciate that guidance. And I know I'm thinking, you know, back to my own four-year-old of how, how I can utilize some of those ideas of like mindfully eating a piece of fruit or rocking the baby, I think is a really neat one. When it comes to the implementation of mindfulness into systems, when we're looking into whether it's a group practice, um, and, and we have a, a therapy group with children or adolescents or looking at a school system, what are some of the things that you've learned and recommend when considering kind of larger scale implementation of a mindfulness practice? One of the things you'll notice if you actually look at the mindfulness literature, if you're teaching the practice of mindfulness, it's almost always done in a group setting. It really is easier to learn in a group setting. I think part of it is in Western culture, the idea of sitting in a quiet room by yourself, eyes closed, to focus on your breath and do nothing else and trying not to think and quiet your mind, that just sounds like torture to most of us. But, and most of us know, oh, it would be quote unquote good for us, um, but to slow yourself down and do it, most people don't keep up a practice unless there's a social group that's doing it with them. And so I think it's just to remember that. So um, what I learned in terms of implementing in a, in a school system, if you ideally you have the whole school on board in some way and the teachers, you know, need to be involved, the administrators need to know what's going on, the parents need to have a sense of what's going on. Um, and it really can shift the whole cult, but it is a whole system-wide cultural shift for it really to be meaningful to the kids. And similarly, if you've got children in a private practice and you're wanting them to, you know, use mindfulness, learn mindfulness to address ADHD or depression or anxiety, it, the family becomes the group. And so I actually have found mindfulness easier 
to to get people to really do it, that having a, the family do it as a whole rather than the individual teenager or the individual adult, um, the family piece really um, makes a huge difference. And so I really develop and I, I have a book called Mindfulness and acceptance in couple and family therapy, where I describe in detail how to actually teach a family to do it at home um, together. And again, you're going to do small one to five minute practice sessions um, in terms of getting the family to do it at home together. So doing it in a group is really the key. Can you give us some examples of, of encouraging family mindfulness and how you recommend families do that? Because I can see in our practices how helpful that might be. Because I know for me, when I've talked with parents or families about mindfulness, it feels really out of reach. It mm-hmm. feels like this this other thing that's on their list of things to do in addition to signing the permission slip and making sure that the soccer stuff is clean for tomorrow um, it's another thing. How do you introduce that? What kind of language do you use and what kind of specific interventions do you recommend? Um, yeah, I, I'm a mother of two young boys. So man, that list, I, I know the list you're talking about. And what I, t- I tell parents, and normally it, parents who come to me, um, they're often wanting their kids to not go on an ADHD medication. And so they're highly motivated. That really helps. Um, and then you make it really doable and simple. And that is, I think, people's um, kind of stereotypes and expectations of mindfulness are way off. And it's like 60 seconds before you go out the door. It could be the 60 seconds, you know, while you're warming up your car um, or, you know, everyone's, you know, they're all buckled in the car. You take 60 seconds before the car moves to, um, before you drive to school and you just tell yourself, you know what? You're going to be, your kids will be 60 seconds later to school. And you know what? That's okay. It's not going to ruin their educational career. Um, it's not going to ruin you know, their opportunity to go to you know, big colleges. But taking that 60 seconds really changes and has a profound effect in terms, especially if you're doing it in the elementary school years, in terms of the stress, uh, managing stress there forward. And as um, most of us, you know, are, probably aware that the rates of um, child and adolescent mental health um, issues has doubled in the last decade. It's correlated with the rise in social media use. But now 50% of American youth are going to have a major mental health disorder but before they turn 18. And as we also know, the suicide rates are going up anywhere 30 to 50% for um, youth. Um, and so these are very scary statistics. And taking that one minute is kind of like a little bit of an, of an insurance plan to help your kids have resources to do so. And so, um, unfortunately, my kids and I, we walked to school. So I, I actually found, um, and it was hard for me to get it done when I was trying to get them out the door. Because literally you're like, okay, where's the water bottle to this, to that? Did you get your homework? Oh my God, where are your shoes? Oh God, my kids, I don't know what you... I tell you, I will have, I have a bin at the front door, another one when they come in the garage, the car, their shoes, they just, their shoes are always lost. It, it is like a miracle to me how these children can lose their shoes. So I've lost my mind usually. <laughs> that might be strong, but certainly my uh, inner lizard is coming out. And so I would forget. And what I ended up doing um, is getting three little meditation poofs. They're like these little things you put your feet up on or a book on. Um, but we have three little meditation cushions now, and I see them before we walk out the door, and I just tell myself, okay, we're going to be 60, 120 seconds late to school today, every day. And having that visual reminder really helps me. It gives, And I think 
it works so much better to have a place to do it. That was kind of special. Um, and so, and even for the kids to be more focused, having those little poofs for them to sit on. So I think creating a space in the house or the other one is when they're everyone's strapped in the car and you're in control and you just don't go into reverse or start the car until you do your 60 seconds of mindfulness um, to just build it into the routine. Um, you can put reminders to ding at you on your phone if that helps you to remember. But, um, and certainly after you do it for a couple of weeks, the kids will remember. But I will tell you, my kids now, um, they, they use mindfulness at times spontaneously, even my little six-year-old to calm himself down. They, when they are building houses in Minecraft, they will often build a meditation room when they do imaginary play, especially if I'm in part of the game, there is often a meditation room in whatever fort they make in the wilderness, you know, or wherever we're at. It is part of their world map now, meditation as a way to calm yourself down. Um, I will tell you, I, I do have a book coming out called A Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers. It's coming out in September 2019. I'm very excited. It's my first popular book. But my youngest child, who really does love chocolate, he's he will do chocolate meditation. It's one of the techniques in the book. It's eating meditation all the time. So every time he gets a piece of chocolate, he eats, Mom, I'm going to meditate. And he takes his chocolate. And sometimes he'll do it with fruit because we do that at school. He'll take it and he'll just eat it really slowly. And he's so into it. But he's practicing mindfulness spontaneously, but it's part of their world map. They know to use it when they're um, when they need to calm themselves down and they see it. You can literally watch them build it into their imaginary worlds. It's just something people do is they meditate and we need to put that into our Minecraft world, too. So it's fun. I appreciate you giving examples that are really easy, I think, for all of us to connect with. And I know I'm already making a list of the things that I could be doing differently. And I'm sure other people are doing that as well as they listen, or we just want to use your family as a case study. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when it comes to supporting teachers in the implementation of mindfulness, um, how do you recommend that schools build it into the curriculum? Is it something that's done at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, both? Uh, Is it when they're heading into a quiet time activity or before they leave for recess? What are some of the kind of pieces of guidance you have for school systems when we have these school counselors and clinical counselors listening that are working outside of the direct service, um, but in, in the larger system like that? That's a great question. So um, Goldie Hawn, who is a famous act- American actress, um, she has created um, the um, Hawn Foundation, which has created um, a curriculum that's um, for elementary and middle school age children that uses, um, that is centered around this concept of what she calls um, core practice. And what core practice is the ringing of the chime. And the concept here is that you, you teach the kids about mindfulness. I come in and do either a six to eight week for 15 minutes. I go into every classroom and we teach the kid a different lesson about, teach the children different lessons about mindfulness and introduce the concept. We also have a a separate workshop for the teachers where we teach them about mindfulness and what it is. So everyone kind of knows what it is. And the idea idea is that the teachers ring the chime um, at the major transitions of the day. So um, at the beginning of the day, they can ring the chime like after the flag salute before they start their lessons. And then typically it's after recess, after lunch. Um, If they have PE, where uh, typically it's very hard to get kids to refocus on schoolwork after PE, you, you would ring at any time you want um, the kids 
to kind of build into any time in their normal routine where you want them to kind of focus again. You don't want to use it as a punishment, you know, um, when the kids are misbehaving, you don't go ring, 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 ring with your bell, which some teachers can't help but doing. Um, you want to have it as just a practice that's built into, into the school routine and, you know, anywhere from three to five times a day. I mean, you have the issue if you don't, you know, if you don't have a teacher who has really has buy-in, it may not happen in her, his or her classroom every single day, the way the program is designed. At the school I go to, every teacher has to have me and I have a team of um, three graduate students and myself who go into all the rooms and we teach the curriculum. They have to have us come and they're encouraged to use the chime throughout the day, um, but they are not, you know, their job's not in jeopardy if they don't. And so that's part of it too. But still, I, I think it's ideally done where at some level it's happening for the whole school culture because the children who are going through this and they're getting it every year. And so I had to keep it fresh and, you know, each year. Um, but um, as I go through this every year, they get that concept of how to use mindfulness to calm down um, before they get to middle school or how to help them focus. And it's really impressive. I mean, not every kid loves it either. It's not for everyone. But I would say the majority get something pretty meaningful out of it and really find it useful as they move forward um, going into middle school. Some of the reading that I've seen, or some of the literature, I should say, recently that's talked about mindfulness when implemented in school systems has pointed to better test scores, uh, lower rates of mental health disorders, um, fewer incidents in the hallways, things like that. What's some of the other stuff that you've seen come out of your work um, or you know from the research of of how impactful this can be when we implement it on a larger scale. Yeah, there are definitely um, reports that yeah, test scores are going up. Kids are able to focus better and longer. There are fewer behavioral problems um, that the uh, social climate improves. Kids are nicer to each other. Um, and, you know, it was interesting in my study, because I did a qualitative piece where the kids were reporting when they would have play dates with friends who didn't know how to do mindfulness, they would teach them the model, the handy model of the brain and what flipping your lid was and, and how to do mindfulness or if their siblings didn't know. Um, so they actually really saw it and used it um, to resolve conflict. Um, one of the biggest noteworthy uh, sections in my qualitative study was most of the kids reported using mindfulness when their siblings were irritating. And they all would go on with pretty long, hilarious stories, quite frankly. Um, it was one of the funnest qualitative studies I've ever done, interviewing like 10-year-old kids. Um, but they talked about using it a lot with their siblings, using it with their parents so that they would you know, actually listen to their parents more because they understood that they were flipping their lids when they weren't you know, obeying their parents. Or um, So they talked about it that way. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, that they really felt that there was the whole school culture became kinder and nicer to one another. There was one day I remember um, I walked onto campus, I was teaching mindfulness and some students came running up to me. They're like, Dr. Gayhart, Dr. Gayhart, um, the other day in PE, you know, so-and-so got hurt, but, and he flipped his lid, but we helped him put his lid back on. We walked him down to the office. So that's really now how they were understanding it. They could see that he was hurt his lizard brain was out and that they needed to help him get that lizard brain back on. And so it, it was, a, they were processing not just, yes, my friend got hurt, but he's also emotionally triggered and we need to help the emotional part. It's not just about getting a bandaid. It's also about calming him down. And so this is, um, 
I, I think some of the ways that there's just more kindness because they're more aware of what's going on emotionally with someone else and they can see it now and they understand they have words for it and they have a sense of what needs to happen. If only we could just will it into existence that we would implement this in every single school. <laughs> um, so for our listeners out there, I think we can um, kind of maybe make a list of some of the things that we've talked about today. Um, so you talked about using this kind of hand model of making a fist, folding your thumb in, and then using that model to exhibit um, the smart part that's mm-hmm. on the inside and then flipping your lid and how that kind of turns off the smart part. It's no longer there and you're in the quote unquote lizard brain. Um, what are some other takeaways you really want our listeners to get? So when they're listening to this podcast, they're getting that recap and thinking, okay, here are the things I definitely can't forget. So yes, the handy model of the brain is very useful. Very over, It's an oversimplified, but very uh, clinically relevant, clinically useful model. I ended up using the same language with adults because they get it. Um, the other piece is to really remember that practice has to be very short and very simple. Even with adults, asking an adult to do five minutes of mindfulness every day is a lifestyle change, you know, and, and so really valuing and advocating for the one to two minute practice sessions, you know, um, is, and especially with kids, that's, that's, that is what mindfulness is going to look like when they're little, but they get it, they learn it, they use it. It's the regularity, the frequency of using it more than the length of time. And so I think also realizing that kids are not going to sit still for even two minutes, like little statues, you know, because when their mind wanders, their bodies wiggle and that's okay. It's okay if they get a little bit goofy. My boys get goofy some mornings and, you know, um, the dog interrupts, you know, it's, you know, it can be a three ring circus, but they have this now templated as a way to calm themselves down. They know how to use it. And so every day doesn't have to be perfect. It's okay. Sometimes, you know, I can teach in a class and I know there are some days that a kid or two in the class just isn't able to do a whole lot of real focusing, but even if they try once they have tried to, they have sent a neural signal through their brain to help refocus and rewire so that they do have a better self-regulation skills. So keeping it small, keeping it frequent, um, keeping your expectations realistic um, is really important, I, I think. Yeah. Thank you. I also really like the idea of implementing it with families, of families having kind of this uh, dedicated time that is set aside just for the special thing to do. And I can even see as therapists, the benefit of us even doing that in session to continue reinforcing that this is something small, that is easy to, to digest, that we can implement and show kids and families how, how to do that. Um, Diane, I'm so grateful for your time today. Um, tell us how people can learn more about you and about your work and also about this research. I mean, there's so, so much incredible research about mindfulness and it's now something that I think is now part of our vernacular. But so how can we learn about you? Wonderful. So I um, on my website, diannegayhart.com, I have um, a lot of resources, um, free resources, um, even explaining some of this online. I do it for my clients because I, I think it's important to get that information out there. And I did create a special website um, as part of one of my research projects, the one where I was interviewing all the students. So all of that is actually up um, it's kind of the public dissemination of knowledge that I got from doing my literature review. And it's, it is www.mindfulschool.net. And so it's mindfulschool, 
not plural, singularschool.net. And it's really, um, just, it summarizes some of the research that I, and goes into more detail of what I was talking about today. It has a, you know, a step-by-step program for schools wanting to create a cost-effective program. And it actually does have at least five videos of the lessons that I do in session. So you can see exactly what my students and I are doing to teach mindfulness to kids, some of the techniques we use. And it has also some guided meditations for children and adults um, who want to practice a little YouTube videos with the kids. Um, so, if, you know, your kids can do um, the mindful belly breathing with the beanie babies or the you know, stuffed animals sort of thing. So all of that's up there. If you want to use it with clients or in school settings, it gives you a lot of ideas. I did find that you do need to really customize things and I um, to make it fit the particular school environment. Um, so I put some ideas around that up there also. And I also, you can also meet Bob, our uh, mindfulness mascot at, uh, at my son's school. Um, and also, Diane, what are some of, uh, remind us again of your books okay. and how we can uh, find those. Excellent. So um, my books are widely available on, from any bookstore, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, like I said, my I'm very excited about my a Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers book. It um, it's the subtitle is a lighthearted way to stress less and savor more each day. But it's a very fun, playful introduction to mindfulness. Yes, there is a, a chocolate meditation. There's actually meditation on white milk and dark and how we form our preferences. So there really is some some real work to be done. It's not all a joke. But I use chocolate as a way to make it fun and engaging. And I think that's so important in our practice. If we make it too serious and too onerous, no one's going to do it. You've got to find a way to make it fun. And for therapists, like I said, I have a book called Mindfulness and Acceptance in Couple and Family Therapy that goes about talks about how to use mindfulness in a more traditional um, mental health uh, setting and practices, whether, you know, working with individuals, couples, or groups, or, um, and so it describes how therapists can use it in various ways. And then I also have a textbook series with Cengage uh, around developing competencies in family therapy, as well as for counseling and psychotherapy theories, as well as clinical case documentation. Thank you. And what are some other resources or professionals that you also like that um, that utilize mindfulness? You mentioned Dan Siegel. Who are some others that you think are important for us to kind of expand our library in trying to learn more about this? Well, there are two great books, at least out there, um, that, or let's say the two first ones that really put out a, a coherent curriculum. Um, one I already mentioned was the Goldie Hawn's uh, Foundation book. It's called Mind Up. And it, they, I think it's mindup.org org is probably their website. And the other is called A Still Quiet Place. And I do believe that is um, the website is a stillquietplace.com. And that is a curriculum for, um, and, it, and it goes elementary, middle, high school, and is a curriculum for like an eight-week group to have. You could do it in a school or in a private practice setting. And that's a wonderful one because you have the, it addresses the whole spectrum of how to use these ideas with children. Wonderful. Thank you again, Diane. We're so happy to have you here and to hear this from you and also to know how we can uh, get in touch and learn more about what you're bringing today. I think these tools that we can utilize not only in our private practices, but also with our own families and in school systems, I think could be really impactful in trying to make a difference for what we're seeing in this increase in different mental health disorders with children. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. 
If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.